Great. Well, it's good to be here this morning. And uh, yeah, we just started a new series on Jonah last week, uh, and we're into chapter two this week. Um, and I have a, um, a little milk chocolate, green and blacks, um, for anyone who can find Jonah first, because it must be one of them not looking at the index at the beginning, um, and not if you've already found it over the last five minutes. Um, but I have a little chocolate for you. The first one to get, tell us the page number. 928, going, going, <laughs> coming. <laughs> Jonah, page 928. And we are in chapter 2. Uh, in fact, I'm going to start at the very last verse of chapter 1. So would you like to look there? And if you remember last week, uh, we found Jonah fleeing from the Lord, um, ending up in real trouble in the middle of a storm, being thrown overboard by the sailors. And now... The Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Well, in chapter one last week, Jonah learned the painful lesson, you can run from God, but you can't hide. Now he learns an even more painful lesson. The way down is the way back up. And we're looking at Jonah's prayer from inside the belly of this great fish. Now, this fish has caused a lot of problems over the years, a lot of questions. You know, three days in the belly of a fish? I mean, how does that work exactly? How can you breathe? How would that smell? Can you sleep? What kind of fish could this be? I mean, uh, Richard Branson was swimming with whale sharks a few years ago, and afterwards he wrote, I was swimming around one of those gentle giants when suddenly I realized I had actually swum right inside its mouth. And he goes on, whale sharks have the most enormous mouths, and this one literally puffed me out. I think the story of Jonah, he said, must have come from a whale shark. I can't think of anything else that could have swallowed you without killing you. Well, with all the fascination with this fish, we're actually told just five simple things about it in this story. Number one, it was a big one. Number two, God gave it the job of swallowing Jonah. Number three, it did it. Number four, God gave it the job of spitting Jonah out. Number five, it did it. <laughs> it might have been a big fish, but it wasn't really a big player in the drama. And anyway, too much discussion about the great fish turns into a red herring. Sorry. 
The author Campbell Morgan adds, people have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. And the great God emerges in the two great confessions that Jonah makes. Firstly, in chapter 1, verse 9, when he says, The Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And then in chapter 4, verse 2, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Do you see these two great truths, the creator God and the redeemer God, both visually enacted in this story? The creator, the maker of land and sea, who sends this whirlwind of a storm, who sends the largest sea creature imaginable. And the redeemer, the God who saves the unbelieving seaman, the rebellious prophet, the pagan city. Now, so far in this story, we've seen Jonah in the boat fleeing, Jonah in the sea drowning, and now we come to Jonah in the fish dying, or that's what he thinks may be happening. And finally, finally, instead of fleeing from God, he, at last he flees to God. Jonah has stubbornly refused to call out to God until now. And the surprise is not that he finally prays. I mean, most of us pray when we're in desperate circumstances. No, if anything, the surprise is that he didn't pray sooner. Finally, finally, he stops running. He's got no choice. After all the sort of desperate activity of chapter one, looking for every possible route to get away from God, he finally finds himself in a place where there's nowhere else to run. He's literally trapped. And the writer makes it very clear how low Jonah has sunk. We're told he goes down to Joppa in chapter one, then goes down into the hull of the ship. And now he goes even further down into the depths of the ocean. You know, down, down, down. And, that's, and the same Hebrew verb is used in each case as if the author is emphasizing each going down as one step further away from God. One step after another. And we've all done it, if we're honest. Some point or another, each step seems such a small thing, but each one takes us further away from God. And it may sound rather dramatic, but for each one of us, it can happen so easily. The decision to date a non-Christian. Taking a job where we know that compromise will be involved. Removing ourselves from people who will hold us accountable. Finding a new house, but not a new church. It's so easy. But God is a rescuing God, and he knows that sometimes the only way up is down. And sometimes we have to see how far our choices take us away, have taken us away from God before we turn around. And it's only often when we come to the end of our resources that we can dare to believe that we've come to the beginning of God's. It's never the end of the story with God. One commentator writes, not until Jonah was all the way down, finally stripped of his own buoyant self-sufficiency, was deliverance possible for him. And I think of the times in my life when I've stubbornly pitted my will against God's. I've decided that I know best what I need, or what my children should have, or what our future should look like. And I've been proud and obstinate and determined and wrong. But failure isn't always a bad thing, is it? 
People understand that even in the secular world. J.K. Rowling of Harry Potter fame described a point in her life in which she'd failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded, she said. She was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as is possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless. But, she added, I began to direct all my energy into finishing the only work that mattered to me. Had I really succeeded at anything else, I might never have found the determination to succeed in the one arena, writing, in which I believe I truly belonged. In short, she said, her success was built was because of her failure. But it's in the Bible, of course, that we truly understand what a God thing this is. It's there that we read of so many amazing leaders who God raised up through failure and suffering. I mean, just think, you know, I hardly need to go anywhere, do we? Just think of Abraham and Joseph and David and Elijah and Peter, and the list goes on. And of course, countless Christians through the ages speak of the same experiences, experience. It's only when we reach the very bottom, when everything seems to be falling apart, when all our plans and efforts feel broken and exhausted, that we're finally open to learning how to completely depend on God. Someone said, you never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And if Jonah was going to begin to finally make his way back up, both in the water and in faith, he had to be brought to the very end of himself. The way up was first of all the way down. So as all seems lost, you know, and he's thrown overboard, God provided, we're told, chapter 1, verse 17, or or a closer translation would be he appointed, God appointed a great fish to swallow him. And that word appointed is actually used several times in this book, as when God appointed a plant to grow and then to die in chapter 4. In each case, God orchestrated an event to teach Jonah something he desperately needed to learn. And of course, you know, with the benefit, with the luxury of hindsight, most of us can probably see that the most important lessons we've learned in life are the result, uh, as Tim Keller puts it, the result of God's severe mercy. God's severe mercy. They're often events that were extremely hard at the time. But later, just later, we can see the good they brought into our lives. And the near drowning and the great fish are perfect examples of such a severe mercy. And obviously, the fish saved Jonah's life by swallowing him before he drowned. But, you know, Jonah was still in this watery prison. He was still alive, but for how long? It was only ever going to be a temporary respite unless God provided another act of deliverance, another miracle. As one person said, the true miracle took place not in the heart of the fish, but in the heart of the prophet. Not in the realm of nature, but in the realm of grace. You see, it's not simply being at the bottom that begins to change Jonah or or us. It's about turning to God when we're at the bottom. And the action is about to come to a full halt. You know, all the running, the storm, uh, the panic, the accusations, the the throwing overboard, all the frenetic activity of chapter one comes to a halt. To leave Jonah alone in this awful place. But this is the place where he turns back to God, where his life is turned around. 
he's saved. And the fish is, if you like, Jonah's confinement, an enforced, restricted place. It was the unattractive opposite to everything he'd set out for. The boat to Tarshish was meant to take him to a place of freedom and opportunity, uh, like Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet standing in the bow of the Titanic, you know, heading westwards towards the limitless expanse of the horizon. The lure of the mysterious beckoning them on. And Kate shouting confidently, you know, Jack, we're flying. (laughs) And in fact, they were heading for a watery grave. And it's interesting that in this passage, we're given an incredibly detailed description of Jonah's near drowning, but no description of life inside the fish. It could have been fascinating. Stunning imagery of falling down, down, down into the depths of the sea. Did you notice? The current swirled over me. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. The earth beneath me, beneath, barred me in forever. You know, you can almost feel the sensation of drowning yourself, can't you? It's so vivid. In fact, it brings back one of my earliest childhood memories. Um, I must have been three or four at the time, and we were on a family holiday in Cornwall. And my dad took me out into the breakers on his shoulders. And a big wave hit us, and I was just thrown off. And I can still remember uh, the sensation of tumbling over and over in these sort of waves, you know, gasping for air and just sucking in more awful, salty water until finally, finally, I sort of was thrown onto the beach. And I can remember my dad's big hands just scooping me up. Maybe Jonah doesn't want to remember the details of that dark, dank, stinking cell where he was trapped, a place of severe and inescapable limit. But this was the place where Jonah made connection with God. And for some of us, this deliberate interference with our freedom, this confinement, often comes, doesn't it, through very specific events. Uh, Maybe sickness. Sickness is an evil. It's not part of God's good plan. But he will use it. And we've all heard people say something like this, haven't we? It was the most significant thing that happened to me. God brought good out of evil. It woke me up to what's really important in life. I'll never be the same again. Uh, Joni Erickson, who was paralyzed from the neck down, do you remember, in an accident in her teenage years, writes so movingly, so profoundly about her experience. Just one little couple of sentences. I am convinced, she said, that the whole ordeal of my paralysis was inspired by his love. I wasn't a rat in a maze. I wasn't the brunt of some cruel divine joke. God had reasons behind my suffering. And learning some of them has made all the difference in the world. For others, another form of confinement is is literal imprisonment. Some of the most moving passages of the Bible were written by those in prison. Jeremiah in exile, Paul in Rome, John in Patmos. And in history, of course, Cranmer incarcerated in Oxford, Bunyan in Bedford Prison, Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag, Bonhoeffer's letters from prison, Wormbrandt in in, uh, Romania, all these wrote their most important writings from prison because that is where they encountered God most profoundly. And of course, most importantly, Jesus took this story. He took the story of Jonah in the fish and drew a parallel, a direct parallel to his own confinement. Matthew 12, 40, he says, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
You see, Jonah in the fish foreshadows Jesus in the tomb. Even Jesus had to go down in order to come up. For Jesus, there was no resurrection, no return to heaven without first going to the cross and dying. Sometimes we struggle to see the gospel in the Old Testament, but here in this story of Jonah, Jesus shows us, he makes it very clear that dying and rising is absolutely crucial to the Christian faith. It's the pattern for becoming a Christian, dying to self, rising to new life, you know, baptism in water, giving us that visual, uh, showing us it in the most visual form. And it should be, of course, the pattern for being a Christian, following Jesus day by day, picking up our cross, laying down our life. But the truth is, for most of us in the course of our very ordinary lives, we don't face drowning and rescuing. God doesn't appoint a fish to swallow us up into that place of, uh, and time of repentance and restoration. We have to find our own cell and carve out our own time, allow it to swallow us whole. And it's hard because however necessary we believe it to be, it doesn't always feel necessary. There's not that pressure, that insistence to spend less time doing other things and more time with God. You know, we have to make it happen. We have to want it to happen. And here in this story, it happens in the weirdest of places. I mean, Jonah prays, or rather he breaks into song, because that's what this prayer really is. It's a song, a song in a very strange place. I mean, can you imagine BBC's Songs of Praise on a Sunday afternoon with the voice of David Attenborough introducing the program, announcing that today, for the first time, this comes to you from the digestive tract of a giant sea creature a first in outside broadcasting. And it's an unusual prayer. It's an extempore prayer, but it's, it's not spontaneously original self-expression. Almost every phrase is taken from the Psalms. Not a word in the prayer is original. Uh, Eugene Peterson adds this, prayer, which we often suppose is truest when most spontaneous, the raw expression of our human condition without contrivance or artifice, shows up in Jonah when he's in the rawest condition, condition imaginable as something learned. But of course, so do many of Jesus' prayers when he's at his most anguished. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Into your hands I commit my spirit. Scripture used at the most desperate of times to express the rawest of emotions. And in Jonah's prayer, I think we see three ways that he's, in a way, still turned in on himself, and three ways that he's turned or beginning to turn back towards God. Firstly, he's still turned in on himself because he's not totally transformed, as we'll see when we read in the next few chapters. He hasn't suddenly become the, the, you know, the perfect prophet through his near-death experience. There's still something of the old Jonah he easily reverts to his old nature. So firstly, Jonah's words, I think, are still very self-orientated. God is acknowledged in this prayer, but Jonah still seems to get center, still seems to hold center stage. I mean, did you notice how many times he uses the words I, my, and me? We too, of course, need to watch out, don't we? When we're searching for God in those hard times, those difficult, confusing times, that it's not all about us and what we're going through, verging on self-pity or self-promotion. 
Because left to ourselves, we so often rewrite our stories with ourselves at the center. He's self-orientated. He's self-justifying. Jonah talks a lot about the danger, but not a lot about his disobedience. He's very eloquent describing his predicament. You know, all your waves and breakers swept over me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. I mean, very detailed, very eloquent. He prays for deliverance, but not for forgiveness. And as far as I can see, all the unbelievers in the story of Jonah respond to God's call much better than he does. He still seems blind to his lack of obedience. And it's so true, isn't it? When we're in trouble, we can so easily lose perspective. And it all becomes about the situation rather than our part in it. We can become self-justifying. And thirdly, Jonah seems, still seems rather self-obsessed. He speaks mainly of his part in finding God rather than God's part in finding him, having mercy on him. Just look at verse 7. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. I remembered you, Lord. And verse 9, but I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good to you. It's as if he's setting himself apart from others, you know. But I, I, I am, I'm different from the others. I'm quite different from other people. But of course, he was the disobedient runaway. He was the prayerless prophet. He'd lost sight of who he really was. And it's true, isn't it, that we all have a remarkable ability to put ourselves in a more favorable light when things are against us. So three ways that he still sort of turned in on himself, but also three ways he started to turn to God. Three ways in which God began to change Jonah's heart as he prayed. Firstly, Jonah began to recognize that he deserved God's judgment and that God was right in punishing him. You know, things aren't happening by chance anymore. He sees God's hand at work now. Verse three, he says, you hurled me into the deep. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I mean, in our day and age, people don't like to admit they're wrong, do they? We're told that no one has the right to make us feel guilty. But part of Jonah's coming back up was understanding that he was a sinner, a sinner, and and that he deserved God's anger. The way up was first the way down. Secondly, he finds God's mercy. As he begins to turn around from going down, down, down into the depths, he begins to come back up to the surface. And halfway through the prayer, I wonder if you noticed in verse 6, we find the big turnaround, the big but. But, he says, you, you, Lord, brought my life up from the pit. Jonah, after all his efforts to run away from God, now realizes there's nothing, absolutely nothing he can do to bring himself back to God. It's all about God's amazing act of grace and mercy. And to his surprise, this is what he finds. Mercy instead of judgment. And doesn't it surprise us again and again when we've done our own thing, gone our own way, messed up, and we think, oh Lord, you know, I've, I've, what can I do? What can I do to make it right? What can I do to come back to you? And we find him again and again saying, no, I'm a merciful God. All you've got to do is turn and I'm here. He gives us mercy instead of judgment. 
And the final shout of triumph at the end of the prayer says it, says it all. Salvation comes from the Lord, verse 9. I mean, some have called this the central verse of the Scriptures. It's certainly the central verse in this book. It's just, in just five words, it tells us the gospel. Salvation belongs to God alone, to no one else. And it's not a matter of God saving us partly and us also doing our part, a sort of joint effort. No, we do not and cannot save ourselves. Only God can save us. That's the gospel. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the remarkable thing is, Jonah makes this declaration. He makes this fresh resolve. He makes his vow. He starts to thank God before he has any assurance that he's going to escape from the fish. Something miraculous has happened in his heart. He knows he's already been truly rescued, even before the rescue, the escape from the fish. That's the real deliverance, isn't it? That's the true miracle. The way down is the way up. God changes the heart of this proud, obstinate, prayerless prophet. And he can change us too. He can change our proud, stubborn, cold hearts. God is the God of the second chances, as we'll read more of in the next few weeks. And however far we run away, however deep we fall into darkness or depression or delusion or sin, he can reach us there and restore us and bring us back. We can't do this for ourselves. But wonderfully, so wonderfully, God has sent a faithful one into the world. And that's the one who Jonah is pointing to to Jesus, the one who knows our weakness, the one who chases us down, the one who opens our eyes, the one who went down into the deepest, darkest place to rescue us, who willingly went to the cross to die in our place and entered into the depths of the grave so that we could rise with him to new life. That's the wonderful thing. Even Jesus, Jesus knew the way down is the way back up. So shall we pray? Let's stand.